Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. This is Kevin DeYoung. Next week, hopefully, I will be joined again with Justin and Colin as we finish off this season before we take a break for the holidays. And we'll be interviewing Carl Truman and uh, talking about his excellent new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. But for today, we have a special interview. And this took place about 10 days ago at our faithful conference that was hosted at our church. And after his opening address, I took about 45 minutes to interview my good friend, Ligon Duncan. So I hope you'll enjoy the conversation that Ligon and I had a couple of Saturday evenings ago in front of uh, some appropriately masked and social distanced people at our church and was able to talk to Ligon about his background, about his love for Clemson football, about critical race theory, and of course we talked about books. If you're not familiar with Lig, you need to know that he is the uh, the Pope of Presbyterianism. Well, if there was a Pope, he would get a lot of votes, but he was for many years the senior minister at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, is now the Chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary. So yes, he is my boss. A lot of people can say that about Ligon. And in addition to all of those things and writing books and having a PhD from the University of Edinburgh, he is, as everyone who knows him can attest, a fine, kind Christian gentleman. And he's a good friend to me and to many others. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Ligon. Good to have you with us. Well, I don't know if this is fun for you, but one of the reasons I do this conference uh, I started one like it in my last church. I've been trying to fits and starts to get it going here, but COVID and other things interrupt it. But here we are. And for me, I love to be able to bring in friends and leaders like Ligon and get to hear him preach, of course, and teach. But this is almost the highlight for me is to ask him questions, interview him. And it's fun. I learn things, but it also feels like now, you're not a stranger here, Lig, but it also feels like getting my church family to know a friend of mine and getting this good friend to know these dear brothers and sisters here at Christ's Covenant. And I know we have some folks who are visiting from other churches. We're glad you're here. So I'm going to, I have, look, at. I'm so, you can tell I'm not millennial or Gen Z. I'm, <laughs> I'm still Gen X because I wrote things out on a notepad interview Ligon Duncan. Maybe the most important question, what is the score of the Clemson game? I have no idea. Somebody, some worldly person no out there? no idea. I've tried not to think about that so that I could serve you well. What is it? Notre Dame's winning, but, you know, it's, it's early. It's early. Well, just... So, um, tell us just a little bit, and I got a bunch of questions. So, the... Do as best as you can for a preacher to be short. I know it's hard for us, but tell us a little bit about your background, your family, how you became a Christian. Um, I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. My dad was a ruling elder uh, in our Presbyterian church, uh, my home church. My mom was the choir director, so we were the last ones to leave church every Sunday. Uh, so I, I grew up in a wonderful Christian home. Mom and dad you know, taught me the gospel and the scriptures from my earliest days. My, my father helped me memorize the shorter catechism when I was three years old. Um, uh, I made a public profession of faith when I was about 10 years old. Um, 
my pastor had done a wonderful job of explaining the gospel. He was a man named Gordon Reed, uh, who taught at RTS and and pastors to this day pastors two little churches down in uh, Sardinia and Alcaloo, South Carolina. So I had a I had a wonderful home life and church life where the the gospel was taught to me from my earliest days. And uh, I you know I can't remember a day when I didn't know that I was a sinner in need of grace and that I didn't know that Jesus was the one that I needed for my Savior. And I professed that publicly when I was 10 years old, and then really by the time I was 14, felt a call to the ministry. And your, your mom is still at... Mom, God she's willing. She's an impressive yeah, woman. God willing, will be 88 years old in about a month. Um, she is in, still living in Greenville, living with my youngest brother, Mel, and uh, she is still the matriarch of the, of the family. And are you, so I, Mel Duncan is on staff at Second Press Greenville. Uh-huh. Some of you will know that. Some of you maybe know Rick Phillips is the senior minister there. And you are a proud South Carolinian, but you've been to Mississippi for a, a long time as well. I don't know anyone who is more South Carolina than <laughs> your brother Mel. He is. He's very South Carolina. Now, do you uh, share that? Or I, oh, yeah. I, I, I preached there two years oh, yeah. ago for their conference, and I was doing Sunday, and so I sat in on the Sunday school, and once you know it, your brother Mel was doing a Sunday school class on South Carolina Presbyterian history, yep. which increased my knowledge yep. multiple, multiple fold. Yes, it was, it was not great before that, yes, but indeed. are you uh, just as diehard about all things South Carolina? Very, very much so, very much so. Uh, I, I, my, my dad was from Union County, South Carolina, just south of, of Charlotte, and, um, and came from a family that had been in South Carolina since before the, the, the Lord Proprietors had, uh, had contract from the king to be in Charlestown. So the family has many generations of South Carolina history, and dad was a history buff, and I've always been a history buff, so I love all things South Carolina. There's a famous story when John Lafayette Gerardo, the famous Charleston preacher, was released from, he was a prisoner of war during the Civil War, and when he was brought back on a wagon from uh, the prison camp that he had been in in the north, as the wagon approached the state border of South Carolina, he shouted out to the driver, stop the wagon, stop the wagon. I must lay my head on the bosom of my mother, South Carolina. <laughs> and John Adger in his biography says, it was a strange scene, but it was characteristic of the man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's a, that's a typical South Carolinian. Okay. I, I, I have my phone over there, but my, my watch is connected to it, and it just said that Mel Duncan texted me something. So I, I can't see what it is if Mel's watching, but he's got something. So um, when I... So I I'm, I'm very happy to be here in Charlotte. I moved here over three years ago, and, and my family and I love being here. Uh, I'm a Yankee, you know, that's where I'm from. And when, when, you're, when you grow up north of the Mason-Dixon line, sort of, especially in Michigan, everything's south of Michigan. Yeah. So I remember one time I was at a conference in Louisville, and I got back, and one of our deacons said, now, when you were out of town this week, were you in... Texas, or where were you? I said, well, I was in Louisville. He said, I knew it was someplace down south. <laughs> Just sort of all kind of Everything is down was south. the same. Yeah. So when you, you said this to me many times, and I should have been smart enough to realize this, but 
you know, you talk about how different Mississippi is than South sure. Carolina. When you're from Michigan, it's all right. kind of just down, just like everyone said. Now you're from Michigan. I went to Minneapolis one time. No, that's Minnesota. <laughs> they both start with N. It's very confusing, and they're cold. What, what's what's different? You've been in Mississippi. Oh, I mean, now I mean a there are a time. lot of different subcultures in the states in the South, but there are also subcultures within those states. So, in in many of the coastal states, there will be an upcountry, a midlands, and a low country uh, with very distinctive cultures. So, in South Carolina, the low country was dominated by the English planter class. The upcountry was dominated by Scotch Irish yeoman farmers, and so you had very, very different cultural, political attitudes, depending on what part of the state you were from. And then and in states like Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi were often populated by the third sons of families in the Carolinas that didn't have any land that they could get from the family farm, so they moved to Georgia or Alabama or Mississippi to get farmland and start their own families out. So when I first got to Mississippi, I, run in, I ran into a lot of names that I recognized as South Carolina surnames but they were people that had come to Mississippi you know, many years ago um, in search of land and such. So you do get different cultures. In Mississippi, you have part of the, the, the coastal region of the state, very Catholic, and there's really not a really Catholic part of North or South Carolina, but there's a, uh, there's a uh, Moravian part of North Carolina. You know, so you get all of these different interesting things in different southern states that impact the, the culture. So just give it to us straight. What what is the South Carolina stereotype about North Carolina? Oh, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> They're almost Yankees. Uh, you would have to read the introduction to Ben Robertson's Red Hills and well, Cotton I know it to, to be get an the South Carolina Red take Hill. on North Carolina. Okay. Yeah. Well, I can tell you what my kids think of South Carolina. That's where you go to buy fireworks. Ah, because you go across the border yeah, and yeah, yeah you get fireworks. You yeah. get fireworks. Uh, so you grew up in South Carolina, you went to Furman, mm -hmm. you went to Covenant, mm -hmm. and you got your PhD in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. what, what did you learn at each of those places? Maybe it's an academic answer, but maybe it's how you yeah. grew in your faith. Just tell us, give us a quick snapshot of God's work in your life at each of those institutions. Um, the Lord was really good to put men in my life, not just my dad, who was a great dad, but other godly men in my life, from my high school to my college to seminary and to, and to postgraduate work, who just had a, a wonderful effect. Not all of them ministers, some of them ruling elders, godly laymen, uh, that taught me what it was like to be a Christian man, um, what the important things in life uh, were. So my college choir director had a huge impact on me, was really, really good to me, and I learned a lot in that context. Um, my, uh, when, when I was in St. Louis, Robert Rayburn, who had been the longtime president of the seminary, sort of took me under his wing and mentored uh, me and was really good to me, as was David Calhoun, who you'll have read. David was a historical theologian, who, uh, a fellow South Carolinian, uh, the son-in-law of Alan Fleece. Some people will recognize the name of Alan Fleece from Columbia International University and, and graduate school. Um, David was very good to me, and, and then I had the same experience in Edinburgh. So good church life in each of those places, and godly men in my life that, um, that modeled uh, either good pastoral ministry or just good Christian living. 
Uh, did you find lots of Duncans when you lived in Scotland? Duncan is so much more a, uh, it's the given name more than a surname uh -huh. in Scotland. It, you, you do find Duncans, but it, you know, uh, Duncan is typically a first name. Uh, and, um, and you can imagine with a name like mine, people were confusing it all the time. Am I Duncan Ligon? Am yeah. I, you know, what am I? Um, so, yeah, you, you do run into a lot of Duncans in Scotland. How, how often have people wondered if Ligonier Ministry is your ministry? All, all the time. <laughs> I, I, I do credit Ligonier. Ligonier is one of the reasons why people can pronounce my name. That's true. Uh, because you can imagine with a name like Ligon, you get called all sorts of things. And, uh, and when I started doing stuff with Ligonier Ministries, I started having people say, hey, is this named after you? And they could say Ligon. So... And it's Jay Ligon. So it what's the J and why'd you go with Ligon? Well, my, my name is Jennings Ligon Duncan III. So my father and his father were both named Jennings Ligon. And now your Ligon. son is... And now my son, Jennings Ligon Duncan IV. Jennings Ligon was the name of a circuit-riding Methodist minister in the Edgefield District of South Carolina in the late 19th century. And he must have had an impact on my great-grandparents because they named their third son after him, Jennings Ligon. And one of the interesting things about that is my father-in-law comes from a line of Methodist ministers. And in the old Methodist directory for the conference in South Carolina in the 19th century, um, the, the, the name Harley, which is my wife's maiden name, is right next to the name Jennings Ligon in the old Methodist directory. So, the, so my, my father-in-law's ancestor and the person for whom I'm named are right next to one another in the Methodist directory predestination. Um, so um, at any rate. Yeah. What did you study with uh, your doctoral work and who was it with? I, I worked with a man named David Wright who was an expert in both Reformation and in early Christianity and I, I, I got terrible advice from a, of a professor which I've always been glad that I got. The terrible advice was go do do something on my in my PhD that I had never worked on before, which is just <laughs> awful like advice. advice. I mean, yeah. it's criminal, criminally bad advice. And so I spent two years feeling like the stupidest human being on earth because I'm studying with one of the best guys in the world on this topic, and I know, you know, about what a seminarian who's had one ancient and medieval church history course knows. But I'm really glad I worked in early Christianity because. Um, most Protestants, in, 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 certainly in the 1980s, were not paying a lot of attention to early Christianity. Now, today, the, the Lord has raised up wonderful Bible-believing, Reformed theologians like your Christian education uh, pastor here, Blair Smith, who know the fathers. But that was not super common yeah. in the 1980s. And, uh, and, and by the way, RTS has been blessed with a surfeit of riches in that regard. We've got a number of guys that know their stuff in early Christianity, and that's very important in our day and time. So going back, uh, you're obviously proud in, a, in an appropriate way of being South Carolinian, being Southern, being however many generation Presbyterian and ruling elders in your your family, so you're grateful for your history. You're grateful for your Southern history. You're not right. looking to topple the metaphorical statues right. in your past, and yet you've you've spoken at a number of venues, you know, quite personally and publicly right. at times about your own experience right. of 
race and understanding yeah. race. Uh, what have you learned in the last 15 well, I, years? I, How have you changed? A lot of it was just that I had blinders on, um, Kevin. And part of those, those blinders had been actually cultivated to me in the way that history was told in the South. And part of it was just not knowing what to look for. And I've, I've gone back and for instance, I, I've gone back and I've looked at notes that I took, and I, I took a Southern Presbyterian history course with David Calhoun in 1985. David, he sprinkled all the breadcrumbs out. In the, I mean, all the things that I should have known, and everything should have come together and clicked, I should have known in 1985. But for whatever reason, I am slow, and it, and it, it just took the Lord a long time to open my eyes to, oh, Oh, that's what was going on. So, I, you know, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a historical iconoclast looking to sort of debunk everybody in the past. Or, or, but I also, as a good historian, I want to be honest about what had happened. And um, Mark Dever and I have talked about this a lot because he had a very similar upbringing. He was in Kentucky, and, but had a very similar view of the South and of politics and of culture. And he and I have both said... You know, that our historical reading in the last 20 years has really ruined the nostalgic sort of view that we had had about the Southern past. And, um, but honestly, that's a more Calvinistic way of looking at things, you know, because this is a fallen world and people are totally depraved and they do terrible things. And even wonderful people can do terrible things. And so I want to be honest about all of it and, you know, just, just because a, a person, you know, even a great person does something wrong or holds wrong views doesn't mean that everything else that they did doesn't matter. Uh, but you do want to be honest about the effect of those things that they had done wrong or embraced wrongly. So it's safe to say you and I probably learned American history from our, our did you go to public school? Mm -hmm. Probably in very different ways. I mean, I, and I'm not saying what was yeah. better or worse, just, yeah. I mean, growing up in Michigan in a public school in the 80s and 90s, we certainly learn about the Civil War and it's kind of, I mean, it's important and we watch yeah. the Ken Burns thing like every year in my history yeah. class. We often had uh, the coaches teach yeah. the history classes, no offense to the coaches, but they, they, they got but away with showing a lot of a movies. Picture, you know, it, you know I'm good, good for you if you watch the Ken Burns stuff, but the funny thing is in our own day and times, you know, Ken, Ken Burns is being criticized well, I know, for being had, far too right, sympathetic. Right, right. He had Shelby Foote on the there. Yeah, was, yeah. But we, you know, I just learned, oh, it was sort of a straight line from that yeah. to Martin Luther King right. Jr., who was right. a hero and was right. great, and the Civil War was, you know, I, I haven't learned, you know, Lee was, uh, was an admirable person, but a yeah. good thing that the, the Union won in sort of right. next part of the history, right. and you probably learned it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, and, but uh, honestly, the, the similarities between the way that American history has been taught in the northern schools and the southern schools are greater than the differences, actually. Right. So both northern and southern public education had a very similar view of Reconstruction, and it was a view of Reconstruction that was highly uh, influenced by the, the way the Southern thinkers tried to influence the way that, that, that 
Reconstruction was perceived. It was a time of great corruption, uh, and you know, thankfully, that finally the troops were removed and the suppression left, and things were much better once they were gone. And and, and actually, Reconstruction in the in the northern in the northern school textbooks probably was taught very similarly to the way it was in southern school textbooks. And of course, I wasn't interested in that era. I was interested in the Civil War. I was interested in the American Revolution. I was interested in the First World War and the Second World War and the Great Depression. I wasn't interested in Reconstruction. And that really is the era where so much gets set going forward into the 20th century. And I, that's just something that I did not adequately study or understand. So as you look at, I don't want to say a church like this, but maybe just more broadly the PCA, um, and just stick for a moment thinking about the issue of race, which is so difficult. Uh, where, where are you concerned from the right and where are you concerned yeah. from the left? Just speak to what you think some dangers are. Well, you know, I, I think I, our biggest challenge in the PCA since 1973 has been that of indifference rather than some sort of active racial animus sort of animating our life and philosophy and church life. I think our, our founding fathers actually faced squarely the issue of segregation and rejected it at the outset of of uh, the, the movement that, that formed the PCA. And, and that was actually a brave and a courageous thing to do in the southeastern U.S. of the 1960s, where you had you know, real live segregationists running for political office and, and winning it, and, and where you could still be ostracized socially for not upholding that ideal of segregation. And founding fathers like Jim Baird and, and Don Patterson and um, Kennedy Smart, and I could go down a long list of these men, all squarely said, we want to be a denomination for all people. We want to reach out to everybody. And that was a brave thing to do in the 1960s and early 70s. So it would be wrong to paint those men as sort of out of control racists. I think when, when Jim Baird spoke about this on the floor of General Assembly, um, he, he, he said the thing that bothered him looking back is that they had not, they had not cared as enough yeah. about the issue. It wasn't that they were pro-segregationists or pro-racist. They had not realized how damaging that had been uh, and, um, and how they needed to concentrate on that in the early days of the church. So I really think the, the, the PCA has you know, has, has tried to do the right thing in, in that area and, and try to work towards racial harmony and solidarity and reconciliation. I just think there are a lot of historical forces at work that are going to make that long, hard, slow, frustrating work. So I can, last question on this topic, so I can sometimes feel a little bit uh, in a no-man's land because I do think that... Um, white Reformed Christians have often been indifferent, and we have often been blind to invisible barriers we right. have. Uh, at this, so I, I want to acknowledge that, and I want to be sympathetic, and I want to always be open to learn right. from, I mean, you and I have been on some of the same calls, and yep. I always learn from these, these sharp, good-hearted African-American brothers. Right. At the same time, 
I, I, we hear a lot about critical race theory, and right. I, I do think that's a big problem, yeah. and I think it's a totalizing sort of ideology. Um, what what do you think we should be on guard from the left, for lack yeah. of a better term, with the kind of cultural pressure to think about race in a certain way, which at times is at odds with biblical anthropology and hermeneutics? Well, I, I think for one thing, we need to look at where those problems are. I, I was start. I wouldn't have known what they were called, but even when I was in Furman uh, in the 19s, late 70s, early 80s, in English and history, I was seeing stuff. I wouldn't have known to call it critical theory, but I was seeing. I was seeing. I was seeing queer theory in English class. So we had to read an article called "Come on Down to the Rack, Huck Honey," which was a homoerotic retelling of. Huckleberry Finn, where Jim and Huck had a relationship going on. So I was in the 1970s and 80s, I was already encountering some. I was thinking, where's this coming from? And so critical race theory is part of a little catena right. of crit critical theories that have been making their way through the humanities uh, for the last 30 years. And I think in, at the university level, we really need to keep our eye on that. And people like Jonathan Haidt and Heterodox Academy, and I, I, there are lots of secular, non-Christian scholars that are really, yeah. yeah, John McWhorter, I mean, there are a bunch of people that are really concerned about this kind of stuff. I've been a part of a group called the National Association of Scholars that, again, they're not Christian, they're, a lot of them are secular, evolutionary, but they hate this kind of bad approach to the humanities, bad approach to history, and, and, and they, they're basically calling, uh, you know, they're, they're calling for a, a modernist rebuke of postmodernity and its, its relativism. So I do think we need to keep our eye on that and, and ask ourselves, how does that impact our young people that are going through that kind of education? What attitudes do they have coming out on these kinds of issues when they come back into the churches? Are they aware that that's working on them and that they may not be getting a clear picture of a field because of the grid? I was telling you the other day, my son is in a critical uh, theory English class right now, and he is having to read all of this stuff. And so that's actually been good to be able to talk through that with him and point him to good resources to go to. I think in 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 out the current conversation on that, we're hampered by some bad faith players on both the left and the right. Some guys on the on the sort of alt right, I would say, would say every time somebody raises a concern about racial history of the past, they're immediately accused of being Marxist, a cr Marxist critical theory, blah blah blah. No, no, no. I'm 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 actually just trying to be biblical about this and think about it. So. I think you have to watch out for it being used as a bugbear or a scare word or um, a, you know, sort of an epithet to stop conversation. On the other hand, there's serious people, interestingly, our mutual friend Tim Keller, really concerned about how he sees this playing out in Northeast elite universities and how it shuts down conversation and you can't have rational discussion, because if you even hold a view, this shows that you're indifferent to the lived experience of minorities and this kind of thing. He's really concerned about this, and appropriately so at the university level. So I, I, think, I, I think you can simultaneously say um, that's not going to be helpful <laughs> in this area, and yet we've still got problems that we need to work on in the area of race or whatever right, other right. critical 
you know, theory area of interest there. Good. Well, I have lots more questions. Let, let's take it back <laughs> to um, Reformed theology. You're a young Christian. What were some of the formative books that really shaped you in thinking and being a Reformed Christian? Um, knowing God was huge for me. Um, John Neville was a PCA minister in Hendersonville, North Carolina, who was a good friend of Jim Packer, and he had Dr. Packer come and speak at the PCA church in Hendersonville. And when I was 14 or 15, um, I went and, and heard Dr. Packer uh, speak. And, and as a teenager, read his book a couple of times. I've probably got five copies of it that I've marked up. I'm actually teaching my son and daughter and future son-in-law through that book on Sunday nights after church right now via Zoom. That book just had a huge impact on me, knowing God. A little book called Search the Scriptures that InterVarsity produced basically just a Bible reading plan. That was before I ever started working through the Robert Murray McChain daily reading plan. I read through Search the Scriptures and marked it off, went went through it probably two or three times in my teenage, year, in my teenage years. That was super helpful. I was, I, I was starting to become aware of R.C. Sproul's popular stuff at that time. Sinclair Ferguson was another person. My pastor was on the board at Westminster Seminary, and Sinclair was a new professor at Westminster in the 70s, and he came and did a Bible um, a conference at Second Pres in Greenville. So I was, I was really being exposed to the best contemporary guys in Reformed theology. And, and then, of course, they started getting me into, you know, Puritan literature that I had never heard of before. My mother was a big Lloyd-Jones fan. She, she had a copy of the old Lloyd-Jones Sermon on the Mount in the two-volume set, the way it was originally yeah. published, that she just read till it was falling apart. My pastor was a big Lloyd-Jones fan, and so, uh, you know, I got, I, I remember getting a gift of studies in the Sermon on the Mount, and um, and some of the early Lloyd-Jones sermons that got put into book form. And so I, I had a, a, a good um, foundation laid for me in my teenage years, just with the good recommendations of my pastors and parents. What's been a book you've read in the last year or so that provoked you, moved you, stimulated you intellectually? Maybe you loved it, and, or maybe it just made you think about something? Uh, I have, um, oh boy, that's, that is so hard. Just do something, um, the hole in our hole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk Real. about your books, Kevin. Um, Which I, of uh, my books would be your favorite? <laughs> you know. um, I, have, um, I have loved reading through Voss's Reformed Dogmatics. Um, and it, for, for people that sort of play the biblical theological yeah. vice over against systematics. So um, give us a quick category in case people think, isn't that the same yeah, thing? Yeah. What do you mean? Are, isn't all theology people biblical? People will use the term biblical theology to mean the study of the Bible from the standpoint of the unfolding of redemptive history. So you're sort of moving historically and chronologically rather than topically. And so systematic theology wants to look at the Bible topically and ask how all the topics of the Bible relate to all the other topics of the Bible and how do you summarize those things in a faithful, helpful way. Biblical theology will move thematically and chronologically uh, across Scripture. And, and when they work right, they both go together and they help one another. But some people have sometimes 
pitted them as an either or rather than as a both and. So when you read Voss's systematic theology, it lets you know how he is able to operate in systematic categories with just as much comfort as he does biblical theological categories. So that's, that's been a fun thing to read through. So some of the people we know, John Piper's thing is Christian hedonism, or David Platt's thing is radical, and Tim Keller's thing is the city. Is your thing covenant theology? Well, I mean, covenant theology has been my great love since I was a seminary student. And I would say it's probably either covenant theology or the Westminster Standards. I mean, I, I just, I love teaching the Westminster Standards, um, and I love teaching covenant theology, so... If, if anyone, you can go on your phone later, you get the RTS app, you go there to the bottom, listen, I think, or lectures, yep. and you can get a, a, several classes for free, and you can listen. I've been listening to some in my car. Ligon's uh, class on covenant theology. Yep. So you can get 30 hours or yep. whatever it is of Ligon's lecturing yep. on covenant theology. Good for yep. driving around, good for... Housework good for yeah. maybe sleeping, and but you no. can you can yeah this is very good for sleeping. Um, you can download that RTS mobile app for free, and then there are over forty five courses for free. The whole courses uh, they're there, and uh, there's some really rich stuff. Is it true that you mow the lawn with the, with the top with the like a little RTS pin and a suit? What what does Ligon unplugged look like? Well, you you saw me this morning unplugged. You, in he, my had, he had a Clemson T-shirt yeah, yeah. and khaki pants. Yeah, is yeah. that as unplugged as it gets? No, I mean I, I will wear shorts around the house. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But not not. But normally I am like this. Yeah. Okay. What, would anyone ever catch you in? The grocery store they in might, flip flops. They and, might catch me in the local grocery store in my cargo shorts and my t-shirt and my Keens. And is that uh, scandalizing for you and them? It's embarrassing for me when I do that. So <laughs> normally I just dress like this. Yep. It's good. It's good. So give us um, give us one thing that you're good at that we wouldn't know you're good at. We know you, lots of things you are good at, and then give us one or two things that you're bad at, because it can Ooh. seem like Ligon just you know, yeah. knows everything and knows everybody. So give us a surprising good thing and then a couple of things to make us feel good about ourselves <laughs> that you're bad at. Well, I used to be good at basketball, yeah. and I'm bad at it now. Okay. Um, I, I, was the, uh, I was the player coach for the University of Edinburgh basketball club while I was there. And, um, and that we, we traveled Europe playing games and had fun doing that. But my, my basketball days have It helps when you're in a place that me. is just learning what the game is about. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well actually, like, almost my whole team was made up of Americans. Okay. So okay. I had one Scott, so legit. Yeah. one Scott, one Englishman, and one German, and the rest were Americans. Uh, although I must say, my my Scott was my well, he's my best scorer. He he had a he 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 didn't believe in defense, but he could score thirty <laughs> yeah. points a game. Uh, but uh, but I, yeah, once upon a time I was good at basketball, but I I am not anymore. Um, I love history. I, I just I love reading history for my personal edification. Any kind of history, uh, world history, American history, military history, um, and so that's something that I I love and love being able to talk to people that like to read books. And so you know, you and I will yeah. talk about things that we're reading and benefiting 
uh, from what am I? I'm bad at a lot of things. I'd have to be here for a while. Okay, I'm bad. I don't. I don't. I'm terrible with cars. And where's Mike Miller? He has helped me change I'm my blink, blinker no, fluid. No and gifting all that. at all okay. with cars. Yeah. Home repair. My kid. The other one of my kids the other day. There's a lot of them. Said, "Oh, Dad, can you help me hang this up?" And my wife just says. I, you're probably going to want me to do that. I mean, I had to turn in my <laughs> hand my in your man, man card, card right for it, and but it's I, true. I like monkey around with some things at home, but I'm not handy like some of these husbands are handy out here. I, you know, there's some things that I'm good at, but the the you know, we start messing with electrical stuff. I'm going to bring in somebody that actually knows what. Now they're you're doing. from South Carolina. Do you yeah. do you like to kill animals? I I have never hunted. Okay, I have never okay. hunted. All right, yeah. do you fish? I am too impatient to fish. Yeah, my my boys, they it's you can all be proud. They we moved down here and they they go fishing all the time. Right. They find a little pond right. in the woods and they want to go fishing all the time. And they didn't get that from me. Wow, at all. My dad took me fishing zero watching times. Watching the Andy Griffith show or something? No, I don't know. <laughs> so what else? I, I want to keep going. What are you bad at, legs? Are you a good at, Are you good at rapping? Isn't it true? No, you I'm and, really bad at rapping. But I'm you and Mel have done it school, before. I'm a very old school bad rapper. Yeah, uh, but rapping has moved far beyond my abilities. Uh, I could do the early stuff that came out. I, I got into that because I was a DJ in high school, and uh, so I was not only the school DJ for my high school. Uh, and thus, you know, often was involved in hosting the dances and things, but I got asked around to do different things. And during that era in the 1970s, the first rap songs went mainstream. So when you're a DJ sitting in dances, you, you listen to songs over and over again and you can memorize them. And so that's kind of how I got Did into you have a DJ old name? school, Live Lig. Oh, yeah. you yeah. heard it here, Live Lig. <laughs> you, you, did you always have a good voice for radio. I mean, I, I'm I, jealous that's, of It's that. all my mom's fault. Yeah, I got it from mom. Yeah. Can you do, can you give us right here, give us a little DJ Lig voice. Uh, we'd, we'd start off in the morning something uh, like this. Um, good morning from the top of the hill to the bottom of the building and inside the door marked authorized personnel only. This is WGHS. That sounds pretty good. Good job. <laughs> Did your mom always say you had an outside voice? Uh, yes, I, I, I always got caught in class when I was talking in the back of the classroom. You know, Ms. Finley in third grade always knew that it was me in the back of the classroom. It was but it's a great preacher loud. voice. I've, I'm that that is true. That. That's the flip side of it. You know, I told my wife, I said, now look, little old ladies are going to come up to me at the door of the church and they're going to tell me what a great preacher I am. Understand that what that means is they can hear me. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it means absolutely nothing about the quality of what I'm doing. It simply means that they can hear me. So, All right. We have about five minutes left. I'm going to do some, uh, some lightning round. And, and I know it's hard to think of favorites or a favorite. What's a favorite hymn of Ligon Duncan? Um, how sweet the name of Jesus oh, sounds. And Lig is a good singer. That's another thing you could have said people may not know. I, again, because my mom was the choir director, I had no choice but to sing. So from the time I was a little kid, I was singing with mom and have grown up in choir. And, and, uh, and, I, yeah, and I love love to sing hymns and songs. Do you remember there's a video of this somewhere? You and I were in South Africa. We did that, that T4G tour uh -huh, there several uh -huh. years ago. We were headed to the airport. 
It was me and you and Bob Coughlin was in the car and two or three other. And what were we singing? We were all singing something, and Bob took a video of it, and yeah. there was parts, and I yeah. mean, it was... It was good. It was I really mean, I fun. thought we were good. No, I thought really we good. were a boy yeah. band. It was ready good. To, it was good. Yeah. Ready to go. Yeah. You, you took the baritone and take the high tenor part. <laughs> okay, what's your favorite? This is like picking your favorite job. What's your favorite systematic theology? You're on the desert island. You only get one of them, but you can bring all the volumes. That's so hard. That is really hard. You know, I still like to give students Burkhoff uh, just because, okay, you don't have time to read four volumes of Bobby, so you're going to have Burkhoff plagiarize the important points for you and translate That's what nobody English, realized you know. until Bobbink was yeah, translated right, to English. Right. That he basically you know, wonderfully and, plagiarized. And so, you know, it's a good introductory systematic still, and I, it's probably been the one that I have assigned more often than any or other one, but I really love Turretin, and I know you do too. Well, that's the so, right I mean, answer. Turretin's Thank Institutes you. of Theological uh, Electric Theology would probably be the one. If you made me take one, I'd say, can I have all three volumes? So Very good. All right. Yeah. What, what, what was the favorite book you preached from as pastor? <sighs> Sermon series you really loved. Um, I, I loved going through First and Second Thessalonians because I I don't think I'd ever realized how pastoral they yeah. were. You know, you talk about the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, but I realized First and Second Thessalonians are just as pastoral as those two letters, and really, really important for the living of the Christian life. So that that kind of caught me by surprise how much I enjoyed preaching through those books. No one will remember here. That was the first sermon series I did when I came here. I didn't go through the whole books. I did five or six weeks on uh, what Paul was uh, thankful for. And I looked at his prayers in First and Second Thessalonians and what he was thankful for and read that back. What, what sort of church do we want to be? So yeah, it's very pastoral. What about your favorite musical artist? Give us a Christian one and a non-Christian. Um, I, I have always loved Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> as a non-Christian musical artist, although Phil Bailey was a Christian. Okay. Um, even can, though they were kind of... Can you remind us of an Earth, Wind, and Fire song? Oh, my. Boogie Wonderland. Can you remind us of one I've heard of? September. Okay, yeah. Um, After the Love is Gone. All right, this is a little bit before my time. Yeah, it is before your yeah. time. You were in diapers, yeah. Yeah, I've heard uh, of them, and it's like the, the stoichia, like the elementary <laughs> principles of the earth, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Okay. Um, so I love I love the elements E W N F. Um, uh, let's see. So now a yeah, cr Christian. Christian. Yeah. Um, I, I love I, I, I love choral music yeah. more than I like contemporary um, Christian music. So for for sacred choral music, um, uh, you know I I love um, I love Bach. Um, and love to listen to Bach chorales and um, uh, oratorios and things of that nature. Do you have a favorite piece you sang in the choir? Uh, I, I love um, the choral finale of Mahler's second oh. symphony, the Resurrection Symphony. Uh, my favorite movement in all sacred choral uh, music is um, the... Denalis Fleischus is Vigras in the the second movement of um, That's all Brahms, our favorites, Brahms Ein Deutsches Requiem. Uh, so um, all flesh, all flesh is grass. It's a it's a powerful, powerful uh, meditation on um, death and resurrection, uh, and it's it's a Protestant requiem, 
Um, and that's so, yeah. Just a plug for that, Nathan will appreciate whatever he is. But uh, there is, you know, Ken Myers talks about fine culture and folk culture, yeah. and both have their place in sort of folk culture, you might call popular culture, it's very yeah. easily accessible. You don't have to have training to, yeah. you, you get it, you listen to it first time, you hear it on the radio, the first time somebody sings it in church, you think, I got that, that's a good melody. Right. And by and large, that's, you know, that's what you're gonna do with the congregation singing. Yeah. There is something that I hope is, will, will not be lost on the church, because there is this rich tradition of rich choral music, right. and it takes something to, to appreciate it, right. to understand what's going on, right. to, but those, those Brahms, or I told Nathan, because I'm preaching through Genesis, that I'd love for our choir to do, Aaron Copeland has a, mm -hmm. has a piece in the beginning, which is a wonderful 15 minute yeah. chorale, just the exact words from the King James in Genesis yeah. one into Genesis two. And there's some of these pieces that are really moving, even though sometimes not like Bach, who is a serious Christian, sometimes yeah. they're not Christians like at all. Ralph Holm Williams, who is not a right. serious Christian, but his arrangement of Psalm 90 uh, in the Miles Coverdale version of, um, Lord, thou hast been our refuge from one generation to another before the mountains were brought forth or ever the world, earth and the world were made. That is an unbelievably moving piece written by an unbeliever. Yeah. Favorite movie? Favorite movie. That's hard. Um, uh, what what was the the movie? It, it, it recent was nineteen seventeen. Yeah, I did not see Unbelievably that. Unbelievably powerful. Heard it. Yes, the single footage yeah, of yeah. World War One. Unbelievably yeah. powerful. Chariots of Fire. Love Chariots of I mean, Fire. That's... Saw it saw it in Scotland, and so it's it, the the opening scene of Chariots of Fire. If you remember, dun, 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 they're running down the beach with Vangelis playing in the background, and at the bottom of the screen as they run up along the building, uh, along the beach, and then you see a building in the background. It says, somewhere in the south of England. So I'm in a, I'm in a Scottish oh. theater, <laughs> and the boom! Why? Because they're running across the beach in yeah. St. Andrews, Scotland, right, right, right. and they're coming up on the old course and the clubhouse yeah, yeah. in St. Andrews, and it says, somewhere in the south of England. So the Scots, boom! <laughs> <laughs> well deserved. <laughs> do you have a favorite TV? Do you do you watch TV besides sports? Do you binge watch anything? Are you watching The Mandalorian? I am watching The Mandalorian, and my my kids kind of clue me in on yeah, what right, things right. I need to watch. And I mean, I love Sherlock Holmes, the BBC Sherlock Holmes with Benedict um, Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch yeah. and I watch that whenever they come out with those. Um, so things like that. Favorite part of the BCO. Favorite part of BCO. Don't you have something? The, the preliminary principles. Oh, okay, are good. Awesome. Yeah. They are. They're Absolutely. Eight of the best preliminary principles yeah. you can read yeah. anywhere. Ligon, we uh, are very indebted to you for giving us your time. Thank you for being with us. Let's thank Lig again for being with us, answering. You can see why I like doing the interviews because I can ask just whatever fun or deep question I want. All right, I'm gonna close us in prayer and uh, we're gonna to try to be mindful of Lig's time, not only for the game, but he's, we got him working hard and he's uh, gotta get back to the hotel and get some rest and preach for us three times tomorrow. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for 
our brother and friend and pray your blessing upon his work, his leadership that so many of us feel and appreciate. And we pray now that you give us grace as we return home and prepare our hearts for Lord's Day tomorrow. Most of us for worship here at Christ's Covenant or for others as they may be in other churches in the area or perhaps other churches wherever they are. We pray that you would bless them. Be with all the preachers who are preparing heart and mind to bring a good word from the scriptures tomorrow. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Life and Books and Everything. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with Lig and hope you will join us next week as Colin and Justin are back and we interview Carl Truman on his new book. Until then, glorify God, enjoy him forever, and read a good book. <laughs>